Welcome back. It's the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and my mic is working this time around. Good for me. Good for me. Hey, don't forget to check out the website and the Twitter thing, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash how, how good it is pod. And I got some trivia for ye this time around. What song from the TV show Sesame Street managed to make it into the top 20? I'll have the answer for you at the end of the show. So, unlike the bands, the Bay City Rollers, who are from Scotland or Berlin, which is from Los Angeles, the progressive rock band Kansas is indeed from that part of the United States. Between 1970 and 1973, the band went through several lineup and uh, name changes. But when guitarist and songwriter Kerry Livgren joined the band, well, things really started to gel and they managed to get a recording contract with John Kirshner's label, which was originally called Calendar Records. That was around the time he was producing the Archies, but which had morphed into Kirshner Records in the early 70s. Kansas had already pretty much locked in their signature sound by the time that first album came out in March of 1974. There was a little bit of boogie rock, a lot of changes to the time signatures, and symphonic arrangements that were punctuated by Robbie Steinhardt playing the violin. And Steinhardt's playing had more of a rootsy style to it than, say, the Electric Light Orchestra, which was going for a more classical feel. For the uh, next couple of years and the next couple of albums, Kansas had more of a cult following. At that time, the primary songwriter was Steve Walsh, but after three albums, he was starting to run a little bit dry, so Kerry Livgren helped to fill in the gaps. They opened their fourth album, titled Left Overture, with a song that was intended to be a sequel to the last track on their previous album. Carry On Wayward Son was released as a single, and it was the band's first big hit, reaching number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 the week of April 2nd, 1977. And so far as I know, it's the band's only single to chart in the UK, peaking at number 51 there. I'm pretty convinced it didn't do better in the United States because there were just a lot of monster-sized hits going on at that time and created a logjam in the top 20. I mean, look, you had Barbara Streisand's Evergreen, which just ending its domination of the charts, Hotel California was ascending. Steve Miller's Fly Like an Eagle was only just starting to drop after about four months on the chart. Hall & Oates was topping the chart that week with Rich Girl, and some of the other songs in the top 20 had been there for weeks and weeks and weeks, so the chart was churning very slowly. I don't know that it would have gone to number one, but in a weaker field, it would have done much better, I think. At any rate, Left Overture was their breakout album, and Kansas became a major headline act. When Kansas went back into the studio to record their fifth album, titled Point of No Return, and that's K-N-O-W, No Return, Steve Walsh left the band briefly. Later on in a radio interview, he admitted he was starting to turn into a little bit of a prima donna, and he was looking at a solo career. And this left a lot of the heavy lifting for the songwriting on Carrie Livgren again. Walsh eventually returned to the band to contribute some of the songwriting, including this, the title track, but it was Livgren who was feeling the pressure to come up with the hit song that was going to follow up on Carry On Wayward Son. Dust in the Wind started out when Livgren, who was primarily an electric guitar player, 
was trying to improve his acoustic guitar skills, and so he would practice this style of finger picking. It's called Travis picking, and it was named after country guitarist Merle Travis. Travis picking involves playing a steady rhythm of bass notes with your thumb, while your index and your middle fingers play the melody on the higher strings. So the guitar line on Dust in the Wind was really just a finger exercise that Livgren had put together to practice his Travis picking. But as he practiced, his wife Vicky would walk by and she kept telling him, Honey, you should do something with that. That's pretty. And that struck him as interesting because she would rarely comment on the stuff he did. Not that she wasn't a fan, but she just didn't, you know, let him do his thing, right? So he put together a melody and that came together very quickly, according to him. The band was literally on the last day of rehearsal for the Point of No Return album when their producer, Jeff Glicksman, asked if they had any more songs. Now, Livgren was reluctant to play this song for the band because it was acoustic and not especially representative of uh, Kansas at all. So he finally played it for his bandmates. In an interview with John Bowes, uh, Livgren recalled that after he played the song, there was a kind of dead silence. And, it, and he says, I thought they didn't like it. And then the guys all piped up and they said, where's this song been? Again, Livgren protested that it was just a finger exercise, but they talked him into using the song on the album. Now, the lyrics themselves are haunting, but they're still pretty straightforward. Livgren has said in interviews that the initial inspiration for Dust in the Wind was a book of Native American poetry he had been reading, which included the specific line, For all we are is dust in the wind. That particular line struck him hard and had him thinking about the value of material possessions. Essentially, he reasoned, no matter what our accomplishments are or what we manage to accumulate, we still all wind up back in the ground. And this philosophy is echoed in a lot of places, including the Bible, where it appears in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where we get the common phrase, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, where it reads, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. And it also appears in the 12th century Japanese epic, The Tale of the Heike, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm a little, I'm a little weak on my 12th century Japanese. Anyway, in its opening paragraph, this phrase appears, Yea, the proud ones are but for a moment, like an evening dream in springtime. The mighty are destroyed at the last, they are but as the dust before the wind. A huge chunk of the band isn't even on the track. Livgren is on one guitar, Rich Williams is on the other, and Robbie Steinhardt is playing both string parts as a violin and a viola in there. There's no bass on the record, and there's almost no percussion except at the very, on, eh, bleh, except at the very end of the song in the fade-out, where Phil Earhart does a little bit on the congas. Not only was it their first acoustic song, it's arguably one of the most popular acoustic rock recordings ever. It got all kinds of airplay. It was on top 40 stations. It was on album-oriented rock stations. It was on adult contemporary stations. It was on soft rock stations. It was on country stations. It was everywhere for a little while. The song peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100, making it their biggest single. And it was in the top five in Canada, and it hit in a few pockets in Europe. But again, not in the UK. Guitarist Rich Williams uh, said that a few years ago that in retrospect, the band took some heat because they appeared to be selling out. In fact, in an interview marking the album's 35th anniversary, he said, and I quote, What about Dust in the Wind was mimicking anything to do with the mainstream? That was an absolute fluke that it was a hit. We had no idea it was going to be talked about 35 years later. It was only a hit because it was a great song. And even a blind pig finds a truffle once in a while.
and it is time to answer today's trivia question. So back on page two, I asked you to identify a song that originated on the children's show Sesame Street that made it into the top 20. And I'm willing to bet that most of you guessed this song. And unfortunately for you, that would be a big fat no for a couple of reasons. First, Menomina was released in 1968 by Piero Umiliani, so it predates Sesame Street by a year. The other reason is it only went to number 55 on the Billboard chart. And what's more, it was used in Sesame Street, as you heard, but it was also used for blackout sketches on the Red Skeleton Show and on the Benny Hill Show. So here's the surprise. Here's the song that did the feat. Rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Rubber ducky was, of course, sung by the Muppet Ernie in the show. His voice at the time was provided by Jim Henson, the inventor of the Muppets. And the song made it to the number 16 slot on the Hot 100 in September of 1970, about a year after the show debuted. Now, given that my brothers and I were small kids at the time and therefore a part of the show's target audience, I may have had a copy of this record, but frankly, I don't remember. And that's it for another edition of How Good It Is. If you're liking the show, share it with someone you love. If you're not liking it, well, share it anyway as your revenge on someone you hate. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we're heroes, but just for one day. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Oh,